Hello and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 76 movies, one cage. This is episode 76, Dying of the Light from 2014, written and directed by Paul Schrader. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski, and this is another movie, second movie in three or four, that has been renamed. Apparently the original name of this movie was In the Dying Light. So they kept the same words, sort of, mostly, and they jumbled them around. (laughs) But this movie, more so than just its name, had a lot of other things jumbled around after it was finished filming. And we will get into that in a little bit. But this movie is not at all what I expected. And I think, like I mentioned last time, this movie and the next two are ones that I have not seen. So we're all, everything's new to both of us. But I would have put money down, for some reason thinking that Cage was a lawyer in this movie. Maybe <laughs> just a box art. I don't know what, but I would have sworn that he was a lawyer. But it turns out he's a CIA agent. Yeah, and a, and a pretty damn good one. You know, I, I think this movie's like half good. I'm kind of torn. We'll talk about it. You're right. I was not expecting what we got. This kind of turned out to be a spy thriller. It's pretty cool. I never really considered Cage in spy mode before, but we're going to get it. And I'm going to like it, mostly. This is kind of a type of movie that I don't usually like. I don't like movies that sort of make things complicated just to sort of make things complicated. In this case, I was into it and I was following along better because I had to for this, because I had to for Cage Club. We're going to talk about it for an hour, so I need to make sure that I know what's going on. But it's these movies where it's a lot of prep work, but it's prep work like it's meetings and it's getting documents. And it's kind of boring stuff, you know, like sort of the the paperwork before you go out and do your thing. I don't think it's the worst of these type of movies that I've seen. It's certainly not the best. I think it's somewhere likely in the middle. This is also most notably, I think, worth pointing out that Cage is aged in this movie. The movie starts out and he's getting tortured and he's sort of our regular age, regular age Cage, you know, almost 50. And then we jump 22 years later and he's got gray hair and he's sort of like, you know, a 65 year old man. Like it's it was that was more shocking than anything else. Yeah, love the biggest time jump yet in Cage Club history. 22 years. He looks like my dad, you know, or like, you know, a granddad at that. I really like the look of the, Like, this was very unexpected, and he's pulling this off. I love how he's, you know, he's not being vain or anything. He's willing to play over his age and everything, and, and that, was, that was cool. I was not uh, expecting that. Before we start talking about the movie, I want to point out that a co-star is Anton Yelchin, who I really, really like. I saw him first, I think, on Huff, which is a Showtime show from like 10 years ago. He was in Charlie Bartlett, Odd Thomas. He's been in a bunch of stuff. He was in, oh, what was that terrible movie... With Alexandra Daddario, oh. where the girlfriend's dead and she comes back to life. Oh, I thought oh, you were going to say Star Trek 2009. No, I'm just joking. No. But he is oh, he was Scotty. And he's also uh, uh, Kyle oh, Reese he was... in one of the Terminator movies. Was he really? Yeah, in Terminator Salvation. Huh. Oh, he was, called, he was in Burying the X. He's in an amazing movie that comes out in a couple months, Green Room, the Jeremy Saulnier movie. So I've seen him in a bunch of things. What's weird, and I, I don't know what it is about him, maybe it's his appearance, maybe it's his voice, but I have a hard time treating him like an adult. Like, he still seems like a kid, I think it, may, it might just be his voice and sort of his boyish looks, but here he's supposed to be like this grown-up CIA agent, you know, doing important things, helping Cage out, and I'm just like, why is this little kid all dressed up and pretending he's in the CIA? 
That's kind of funny. I, I sort of had a different, a much different reaction. I was like, oh, he's he's sort of pulling off this junior G-man reputation kind of well. There's that one moment where, yeah, clearly, you know, he's very baby-faced. There's one moment where someone has to call him sir, and you almost get the sense that it's out of contempt or something like that. But I don't know. I kind of always like that play on the young brash agent you know i kind of got like a bit of like an agent starling kind of vibe of course but a man going from him but we're gonna get by pairing up cage and anton here is you know straddling the generations of the bureau right cage is gonna bring all of his 35 years of know-how and then this character played by anton is he's gonna sort of bring in all of the new tricks of the trade of the new generation and the two of them together will will sort of team up and we'll, we'll get to see how the old and the new play off each other here and I don't want to say that he's bad. Like, I don't think he's bad in this movie. And I was able to take him seriously and see him as an adult. Like you were saying, maybe you, maybe you were able to do that a little bit quicker than I was. I really like him as an actor. And I'm looking actually on IMDb right now. He started in 2000. He's already got 62 credits. Wow. So, you know, starting 19 years after Cajun, he's almost caught up. Like, dude works. Like, he does a <laughs> lot of work. Uh, he's actually younger. Wow, he's younger than me? He was born in 89. That's wow. kind of scary. He's going to turn 27 in a couple months. So... He has been busy. Congratulations, Anton. But I liked him in this movie, and pretty much nobody else in this movie is anybody I've ever heard of. Did you know anybody else, or was it just pretty much those two guys? Yeah, I pretty much just know those two guys. I mean, aside from them, there's really not that many featured players. We get the main villain, we get a a certain doctor, their connection, their female spy connection, and the guy in Cage's boss. Those are kind of like all the other roles, but it's mainly going to be these two dudes throughout the entire film together. And I'm okay with that. Like, they're both, they, they play well together, they have sort of a chemistry, What's interesting about this movie is that it's not really the father-son, the mentor-mentee dynamic that we've seen in several movies recently. And I think that's mostly because Cage, early on in this movie, is diagnosed with frontal temporal dementia. That makes him aggressive, it makes him forget things, it makes him pass out. It's like this very aggressive neurological disorder. It's going to kill him sooner rather than later. And Anton is sort of the, like, Milton, his character, is sort of like the grown-up here, because Cage Mm -hmm. almost can't take care of himself a lot. So it's kind of an interesting reversal that not only is Cage aged in this movie, but he's also suffering from dementia, and he's sort of reverting a little bit to, I mean, aside from the fact that the movie literally flashes him back in his mind 22 years multiple times, he's sort of kind of a child at heart, in a way. Yeah, I liked how they try to play that up throughout the film. I have a feeling hands were meddling throughout this production to make it something else, but I could see where they were really going with that, and I was pretty surprised. Like, this is actually going to try and explore this mental illness seriously, you know? And, I, I, you know, mental illness in Hollywood and feature filmmaking has kind of had, like, a bad track record, you know? Uh, and this movie actually does a good job of trying to treat this realistically, seriously, with a certain amount of respect. What I really like, though, is that it's like this ticking clock that really works, you know? Like, he's got to sort of catch this guy before he dies, right? Like, that's, that's the whole thing. Like, Anton Yelchin kind of gets this hit that the guy who kidnapped and tortured Cage 22 years ago in the field is actually still alive. So now that Cage finds this out, he makes it pretty much his solemn duty to get this guy before he pretty much dies. So what's the backstory? The Cage was a CIA agent, right? And 22 years ago, he was just kidnapped, and before he was rescued, he was tortured to give up information, 
had his ear cut in half, like with like gardening shears. That was mm-hmm. crazy and gross. Literally seconds after he gets his ear snipped, the U.S. Army busts in and, and rescues him and takes out the guys. And supposedly, kill everybody there and rescue Cage and bring him back. But Cage has in the back of his mind, and he has for these next 22 years, that this guy is not dead, that he's out there, and he's sort of made it his sole duty, kind of like, in a weird way, the same way he did in the frozen ground. This is the thing that's driving him, right? Like, it's the one thing that he's like a singular focus, and he knows this guy's not dead, and so before he dies, or before he's done, before he retires, whatever, and especially after he gets his diagnosis... He wants to make sure that this guy gets taken out, avenge himself for the pain that was inflicted upon him. Yeah, yeah. I almost got kind of a drive angry feel going on here, right? Like, this is a man who's got a mission and knows what he's got to do. And throughout it, what's interesting is throughout it, he's like fighting this system that he's sort of lost faith in, in a way, right? Like, he's been a career government guy and... You know, he finds out this man might still be alive, and he's like, look, you know, we should be going after him, you know, and we're supposed to act upon values and, you know, do it because it's our job. And everyone at the agency is just kind of like, shouldn't you be retiring? Like, shouldn't you just, like, leave it alone? If And it's it's just interesting how he's constantly, like, fighting against the system. And, and it's not just, like, the right or the left. Like, he's got problems with both sides in this movie, too. So it's it's just really interesting how he can sort of go rogue and do what he needs to do. Well, because he's he's working outside the system, he's doing his own thing, no one believes him, like, everybody thinks this guy is dead, that they have supposedly intelligence, and this is where the whole subterfuge or kind of confusing elements start to play in, that it's not like they just found the guy, that they've been tracking this chemical compound that supposedly treats this rare illness that the guy that they're looking for has. I understand that that's probably how it's done in real life. But it just seems like an extra step for these kind of movies where it's like you have to follow, like the movie almost wants you to keep up with it, you know, mentally. Like, And I'm not saying that I, like, me describing this sounds like I can't follow movies. Like, it's like, you know, (laughs) that these things are confusing me. Instead of just following the one guy, like trying to figure out, okay, he wants to get revenge for what was done to him. Now it's like, okay, he's doing that. But in order to do that, he has to find this chemical compound. They don't find it. They get a call from someone, and you find out it was like three years ago that they put it in. Like it's all, it's just like this trail. I don't know why I'm thinking, but like you know, the hungry rabbit jumps. It's just like this whole yeah. like web of conspiracy <laughs> that you have to keep up with and sort of understand to figure out what's actually going on here. Like I feel like there's good stuff here, but it's very top heavy, and there's a lot of exposition. But it feels like it could be doled out in a better manner. Like I, I, I like the stuff. What's going? It's very intriguing. Like how Anton Yelchin has a friend at the NSA and he put in a hit about a certain chemical and like it came up and it, it just it's like this little breadcrumb trail that leads from one thing to another and Cage and, and Milt have to sort of work together because I, I like all that stuff I just don't like the way it's explained you know it just feels more complex than it needs to be at times because they like to jump around we're going from Hungary to America and not only in America then we're going to like Virginia and like other states and things so like we're always we're jumping around a lot I'm, I'm kind of having a little bit of trouble getting my bearings with this movie is I think what it comes down to but sort of at that first act break where we actually have like a clearly defined purpose for the movie like then i kind of go with it a a lot more this is kind of the most globetrotting movie we've had since lord of war but that was you know taking place in a whole bunch of different countries as cage was going around and selling guns here we're going from place to place like you were just saying 
to get information, to meet new people, to get ready to do this, to go actually complete the job. I mean, they, they very clearly articulate and show where we are, but it's like there's a whole lot going on. We go to somewhere in Russia, I think, or like or Europe somewhere. We see two guys, and like we're, we're I don't know. It's just it's a spy movie, and it's yeah. sort of like it's it's very clear that they want to point out like. Things are going on here. We got multiple pieces in play. We're not playing checkers anymore. Like this is chess. Like this is higher level. There's a lot of things going on. It works better in other movies, but I think it works okay here. I just think that it's a little bit overcomplicated for the type of movie that we wound up with. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Spy stuff is tricky. You know, you either end up with action spy stuff like Bond and Mission Impossible, or you get stuff that can borderline on incoherent because they want to take it more seriously and do less action and be more about the intrigue and the mystery and all of that kind of stuff. And this comes close to writing a good balance of that. I mean, there's very little action in this, but they try to do the complexity thing and they kind of give up on it, though. Like, that's what I feel is like they make an effort and then they find their groove. Like, it's mostly about sort of locating a certain, it becomes about locating and impersonating impersonating a doctor that is supposedly working for the bad guy that Cage is looking for. So really what the movie becomes is like Cage is going to like quit his job in a fantastic scene of Cage's where he really like the disease takes over and he loses his control and his temper and everything like that. But the movie is basically like he's going to go impersonate this doctor to infiltrate the safe house where the bad guy is and kill him with his bare hands before he dies of this disease. There is a concern that you could become a liability to the agency. Fuck you. Calm down. I'm a liability? You fucked this up just like you fucked up everything else. Fucked up Iran-Contra, fucked up Ames, fucked up 9-11, fucked up WMD, Afghanistan, Iraq, Benghazi. Not you yourself, of course, no. No, you're just the latest in a long line of fuck-ups who turned this agency into a cesspool of politics and special interests on behalf of the weapons makers and the surveillance industry who get richer while we get weaker. Mr. Lake. I could... I've forgotten more about this agency than you'll ever know. Who put you up to this, huh? Who's got their hand in your pocket now? I've seen a million people like you. A million people. You got your head so far up Obama's ass, you can't see anything except the shit anymore. Shame on you. Shame on you. That scene where he quits, and we're jumping around, and I want to go back a little bit more sort of straightforward through it, but as Cage sort of falls into this dementia, both when he quits and sort of at the very end, we get some really great, tremendous Cage freakouts and Cage meltdowns. There's a reason for it. It's not just him going manic or the character you know, getting worked up that he's actually kind of losing control of his brain, and he just sort of flips on a switch and just gets super, super angry out of nowhere. And it's this cage freakout that we've come to see and come to know and love. In this movie, it's just cool to see, you know, old man cage freaking out and, like, throwing things at security guards and just really making a scene instead of just packing the stuff and leaving. What I really like is that there's a reason for his character to be doing this stuff, you know? And and also it works well because he's such a well-tempered man to begin with, you know? Like, in the very opening, he comes out and makes a speech to new recruits, and at first he's putting on this front in a way where he's being very military-esque and saying stuff in a very harsh, sort of strict manner. But then he kind of relaxes and does like more of like himself and everything so you get this sense of a man pretty much in control or at least like a very well-tempered guy so when he explodes and he starts to have an episode and things like that it's effective because 
it's quite different than his normal demeanor as a character. So you get a sense of a hard flip, you know, something out of his control. What the hell are you doing here? Haven't you heard? The CIA fell from the Berlin Wall and all the president's men can't put it back together again. It's broke. Not reliable, not trustworthy, can't stand up to the White House. Backstabbers. Watching porn, tapping phones. Best and brightest, quit or retired. What in the name of Jesus Christ nailed to the cross are you doing here? Because you heard the call. That's why. Your future spread out before you like a cruise ship buffet. You were teaching in a classroom, working in a kitchen, training in a gym, and you heard the call. For some, it was adventure. For some, mystique. For all, it was 9-11, and you heard the call, and it was the call of duty and love of country. Like, I don't know if it actually is realistic, because I don't know anybody who's been, who's been diagnosed with this. I don't know anybody who has it, but it feels like it could be realistic. You know, like, we see him just normal, and like you said, you know, like, we flip the switch or whatever. We just see him begin to get enraged. Like, you can sort of see, like, it feels authentic. It feels genuine. And I think that might just be him selling it. I'm not sure. Like, him as a good actor, I'm sure someone lesser as an actor or someone we're not, you know, wholeheartedly infatuated with and sort of Stockholm syndromed over, if they went through the same thing, we might not think it's necessarily as great. But I think that he really does a good job here in terms of selling him both as a sympathetic character and as this guy suffering from this horrible affliction. Yeah, I agree. And what else I like about it is he's still very capable, you know, like it shows in a way that other people around him are going to say, like, you can't do this because you're sick, or you can't do this because you're old, or, you know, like, you were in the field and you belong behind the desk. And it's like, he knows himself better than those guys, you know? So, like, he's gonna... You know I'm trying to say? Like, he... I like that the movie will be like, oh, no, like, a, an old man isn't worthless. Like, a sick person has value. Like, all these things. Like, the, in a weird way, the movie is sort of championing people with afflictions and saying, like, they're not to be just like cast aside like they're still useful in a way and i don't know i, I like that yeah it's definitely kind of in a weird way like elderly triumphant or elderly like in a, in a weird way i mean even though they're showing this old man who is sort of his his body is failing him you're right like they're saying that he's not done he's still got fighting in him he's still got drive in him he can still go about and do things in the beginning of the movie, in that speech that you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, it's like this great speech that he comes out and he looks like he sort of acts, not manic, but like very intense. Like he's so serious. And it's sort of in a way the same kind of emotion he'll be showing later in the movie. After he intimidates this crowd of new CIA recruits, he then goes into his thing about like why they're here because they all had this vision. They all heard the call that they're all here for a reason, that whatever the inspiration was for them to get here, they're all here for the same reason. And it's like this guy who is capable and determined and smart and knowledgeable and helpful, and at the same time, it's this guy who is literally falling apart and dying. Yeah, yeah, I just, you don't see stuff like this a lot in movies because it's like a weak hero, I guess, is how people might perceive it and i guess they just don't want their good guys to look this weak in a way but i dig it because it's something i haven't seen a lot of or really that much at all you know yeah the movie isn't the best movie but it's not the worst movie either and it's definitely watchable it's worth watching for these reasons you know 
because of the issues it's trying to tackle and yeah it, it has it has its problems but again we'll get into this movie was pretty much taken away from its creator at a certain point and refashioned into something else and i think if the director had his way the way he wanted to originally it would have been something more profound that that people would have had to pay attention to but yep. unfortunately it just kind of comes across made like it feels like it's just made out of like a factory assembly line that way like there's just nothing to enhance the themes and stuff you know you wish there was some more sort of pizzazz to show his perspective of what he's going through from his vision like hallucinations or things like that or something but we don't really get anything like that yeah there's no double meaning here that everything mm-hmm. you see like what you see is what you get you know, they're not telling a greater story. They're just telling, like, a revenge story from the perspective of an older man who is going through mental issues. Like, that's it. Like, there's nothing... I don't think there's anything, like, smarter or deeper than that going on. And, I mean, really, who knows? Because this movie sort of had a long journey, like we've sort of been alluding to. It was written and directed by Paul Schrader, who wrote Bringing Out the Dead, who's this known quantity, this great writer... He's going to come back in the next year, or sometime, no, actually later this year, right? In Dog Eat Dog. He's directing Cage in a movie that's coming out this year, so we'll hear from him again before too long. Apparently, the original script that he wrote, the spec script, was great. And Nicholas Winding Refn, the director of Drive and Only God Forgives, loved it and was going to direct it. And he was going to have it starring Harrison Ford, which is kind of weird that like Cage looks like Harrison Ford, I think, in a lot of this movie. Yeah. So maybe they just had like a vision for the character and like, hey, let's make Cage look like him. He's going to start Harrison Ford and Channing Tatum, huh. which would have been kind of cool. I would have liked to see Cage and Tatum. That would have been awesome. But until Ford left because of creative differences and didn't like how bleak the end of the story was. Yeah. And so after Harrison Ford backed out, Winding Refn was just like, well, I'm not going to direct it anymore, but I will stay on as an executive producer. And then when this movie was basically taken away from Paul Schrader after production, in post-production, the producers went ahead and edited their own cut of the movie together, and I'm sure you have a little bit more information. They just completely did this different vision for the story, and Winding Refn came out and said it was artistic disrespect. Paul Schrader had this whole thing on his Facebook page about how, quote, we, like, we lost the battle. It was a film I wrote and directed, was taken away from me, re-edited, scored, and mixed without my input. He and Cage and Anton Yelchin posed for photos, like, wearing their disclaimer t-shirt that they're not allowed to begrudge or, you know, talk bad about the film or anybody involved with the film. But it was, like, this protest of, like, this is not the movie we want to make, not the movie we signed on for. We're not happy. Even though we can't say it, we're going to let you know that we're not happy. And so it's this whole complicated backstory or after story. I guess if it was up to Cage, we probably wouldn't even be covering this for Cage. <laughs> I mean, it's a miracle that this movie tells a coherent story at all, to be honest, after hearing all this. It would have been incredible if Nicholas Winding Refn directed this with Cage. Like, now I need to see that movie somehow. I mean, you can actually see some of the director's original intent on the bonus features. There's about 25 minutes of deleted scenes, not necessarily deleted scenes, scenes that seem to have been cut and edited the way they originally wanted the movie to be. I'll explain. Like, There's a very heavy use of color, you know, sort of, I guess, to enhance a second meaning to everything. But, like, all this stuff where he's talking to the recruits is, like, this tar brown filter. There's very heavy green filters during the scenes with the terrorist leader guy that Cage is after. I mean, this color-coded. 
is basically what I'm getting at. Like, this film was meant to be something more. And talk about re-editing, some of the camera angles and some of the shots in the bonus feature assembly cut are just, like, insane. Like, stuff I've, you, you know, you'd be like, I guess it must have scared the backers because... It really showed you sort of the perspective of the Cage character like I think I wanted more, you know, like I was getting at. From his point of view, there's one scene where he's talking to some guy and he does have a small, does not even sure. It's just like he might be having a hallucination or he's daydreaming. There's just a lot more camera shots that are strange, are, are Dutch angles. Uh, the person isn't talking when you hear them, just like very different and might have been a much more entertaining level to everything going on here. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, in terms of the color thing, like what I had read, I didn't read anything about the the angles, so I definitely want to go back and check those out because that seems very interesting and different. Paul Schrader had this whole idea, Hink and the cinematographer had this whole idea to have like each different country or each different continent bathed in a different color light. And then when they edited or re-edited it or whatever, they sort of muted the colors or changed the colors. And the cinematographer went on this whole big rant. You can read this whole thing online about how it ruins a movie. He compares this movie to Apocalypse Now, which I don't... Mm. He's, like, he's, like, try, he's like, try to watch that movie in black and white and tell me it has the same effect. You know, he's, he's making a point here, but it's just, you know, whether it's camera angles or colors or whatever, when somebody else takes your vision for a movie, like, changes it... That's not good. Yeah, no, and and I guess the one thing they couldn't change were his words, right? Like like the actual story and the script, and it's sort of a testament to Paul Schrader's abilities as a writer is that, like, they really couldn't entirely screw up his story. You know what I'm saying? Like, it seems like they tried to craft something that wasn't there, but the original story still came through. And I don't know. I think, I think, yeah, that's just strength in writing. I'm sure that the story that we get is probably pretty similar to the one that he wrote. I don't know that they can necessarily, unless they really go out of their way. That doesn't seem like, I, I feel like it's more the way things are cut together, the way things are edited, even slight differences can make a big deal. But watching this movie, and I was trying to think about Nicholas Winding Refn directing it, and the very, very end, when Cage finally has the head-to-head confrontation, I can see that as a scene where it's, like, brutal and realistic and gory. But the rest of the movie, it's just short, sort of shot, and I don't know if this is a knock on Paul Schrader, or if this is a knock on the editing or whatever, It just, like, not, none of the other shots really stand out as memorable. They're all just sort of by the book almost, right? Like, mm-hmm. do, you, do you think there's anything like really visually interesting about this movie? Uh, there's maybe one or two shots that I was kind of like, oh, well, that okay. There, that, that's, and there's a shot in the park where they're outside late at night and Cage has that great big fluffy Russian hat on and they're sitting in front of a building and it's very beautiful. But I'm like, oh, that's just more out of circumstance. And then there's a shot in an office which the camera sort of flies through the room. I'm like, oh, they must have used the drone for that. Like, that's kind of interesting. But mostly, yeah, just feels like a basic shoot and like i said in those special features there's definitely stuff they shot from the character of cage's perspective and this version is just a very much more straightforward like let like you said like let's not go deep like with the uh visual language of this movie let's just show it by the book which makes for a really kind of frustrating like because there, there's there's things here especially when you're going around the globe there should be things that are visually interesting. You know, there's action, there's all this different stuff. Even that big shootout at the end isn't great. Like, there's nothing here to really, like, hook me in here that the story is kind of okay, it's kind of cliche, 
The visuals are just sort of okay. They're nothing really I haven't seen before. I mean, the performances are fine to good, whatever. I mean, it's, I don't think it's necessarily like a bad movie. It's just sort of like a... It's just a movie, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it does nothing to really make it stand out. I guess what kept me hanging on was the potential that I kept seeing. Like, there's all this room for stuff like we've been talking about. Like, there's room to show Cage's point of view. There's room for better action. You know, there's like this very poorly shot car chase really quick in the beginning for that thumb drive or whatever and i'm like oh okay like let's beef up this action nope it's over (laughs) later on there's i think maybe a foot chase after that undramatically shot shootout by the swimming pool at the hotel there's room for stuff and that's what's keeping me going and it's like i'm also going between the relationship between cage and his partner here because i do think they have good chemistry i noticed one thing about their scenes most of their scenes between them and with sort of a laugh or a smile and i don't know if that was like intentional in the script or anything but i liked their moments between them and yeah maybe there is a bit of that i'm just grabbing on the cage and what he's doing here to get myself through the rest of this to some degree do you think that that's in the script that like the people like the the characters really like each other or just the two of them sort of bonding you know wherever they're shooting it overseas they don't really know anybody else they're just Cage and Yelchin as the actors are bonding. Do you think it's characters or actors or both? I think it's coming. I think it's coming through. Like I think there's supposed to be some kind of paternal thing going on here. I, Anton Yelchin's character, uh, Milt, like tells this very quick story about how he basically had like a huge foobar situation when he was overseas in the field, and basically the agency like left him out to dry. And it was only Cage who shows up and is like, "This is an American. He's one of our boys," and like gets him back to sovereign country and gets him behind a desk and like pretty much saved this kid in a way so i i don't know how much of that is supposed to be coming through but i'm getting a lot more of it because i feel like the two of them are bouncing off each other pretty well and i also think that that's set up pretty effectively with the characters that i think they do work well as actors but there's that scene i think it's when cage first gets his diagnosis and the doctor's like if you want to call your family he's like no my work is my family and so it makes sense for the characters to be bonding and sort of be close like that Because not only did Cage go overseas and bring him back and save his life, but he's sort of, I guess, in a way, like a son. You know, if if work is his life and his work is his family and he's got no one else, then, you know, his best friend at work is theoretically sort of, you know, like a family member to him. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that, too. It's weird, too, how, like, a co-worker, too, you know, like, this whole, it's all attached to work and family, and, and that's that's an interesting theme there, and I think it works. I don't know. I mean, everyone at the agency kind of thinks Cage should retire, and that he is this crazy old man, but Anton Yelchin's like, yeah, if it wasn't for him, it wouldn't be. So I don't know if he feels like he owes him something, or if he just wants to get up to do some cool spy shit, which also seems like, right? Like, it just seems like Anton wants to get out into the field, and, and like, in a way be like danger man and run around the globe and solve a mystery and and stuff like that that also parallels cage because cage instead of being this young guy who wants to get out in the field he's this old guy who apparently for you know for a couple years now or whatever has been trying to get back out in the field and his supervisor keeps turning him down that whether he just thinks he's an older man or he's seen too much shit or he's got the hand tremors that he knows about cage keeps either getting denied or sort of his paperwork keeps getting brushed aside Both of them are just hungry to get back out there, right? And so it's kind of like Anton Yelchin is a younger version of Cage 
that they're both going to do this one thing, and the Yelchin doesn't necessarily have any stake in the game, like he doesn't have any personal driving force why he's going over there. He's going there just to help his friend, but also just to sort of get his hands dirty again. Yeah, I think that's the big thing is, like, he sees the opportunity to see some action. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, (laughs) there's a very shocking moment when he's sort of left alone to track down one of the bad guys and, like, catches him and, you know, slits his throat and hides the body behind the dumpster. And it's like, whoa, this kid is capable of some crazy dark stuff and like that's when you sort of remember these guys are dangerous they're trained agents like they know what they're doing you know like they're fully able to take care of themselves and that adds like a whole other level to the cage character like yeah he is very deceiving you know like he looks like a old man with a brain disorder but he's actually like an incredibly well-trained marine and cia agent and you know he can still kick some ass but he's still not strong enough to, for instance, you know, he gets pulled over in the movie and, like, the cop's just like, I can't let you drive. Like, we have a report that you're prone to passing out. Like, we can't let you drive. You know, he goes to Romania and he can't even talk to the bartender or whatever, the waiter. Like, he's like, isn't this a smoking section? Like, wait, remind me, like, aren't we in Romania right now? Like, you know, the whole country's a smoking section. Sir? What? Uh, this is a non-smoking section? Let me just check something. Yep, I am in Romania. Are you out of your fucking mind? This whole country is a smoking section. Oh. Okay. Okay, sir. There is a smoking area upstairs. I'm putting it out. Jesus! He is this really capable guy, but he's still not able to sort of talk his way out of these situations with people of even, like, you know, a little bit of authority. That he's kind of this guy that's past his prime, that wants to do important things or, you know, wants to do meaningful things and just sort of is handcuffed and unable to do so and keeps getting told by his boss or by the cop or by the waiter, no, what you're doing is wrong, you can't do that. Yeah, I I think that's very interesting too and it goes sort of like what I was saying about how sick people, old people, like they're still useful, but there's also this thing where it's like you got to also sort of know your limits to a degree, right? Like he was driving and I was like, oh, he shouldn't be driving and then he gets pulled over and I was like, yep, like I'm really glad that was in the movie because – it's sort of you got to put limits on him somehow you know what i mean like even for the audience like it's nice how they have the audience be reminded and when that scene in romania comes and he has this episode it's like oh yeah like he really i forgot in a way that he had this problem like that he has got this disease but that makes when it surfaces that much more effective there's a really great confrontation when he uh meets the guy he's been looking for this whole time and is kind of a cool contrast. The guy he's looking for is also dying of sort of like a very hard to cure disease as well. So you got like this dual ticking clock thing going on where it's like he's got to catch this guy not only before he dies, but before the guy dies. Kill him before he dies. It's very, very weird. And I think that's maybe where the name of the movie comes from, Dying of the Light or In the Dying Light, that, you know, before their day is over. And even, you know, as Cage is explaining his illness or his disease, his dementia... He says that they call it sundowning, that, like, when the sun sets, like, it gets worse. Like, that's, like, the only kind of deeper metaphor here as the sun goes down. Like, the metaphorical sun in Cage's life is going down, right? Before the sun goes down too far, before the sun sets, before his day is over, he's got to make sure he does this thing. In this twilight hour, 
you know, the last chance that he has to fill his destiny or live up to the hype that he's built up for 22 years, take out the guy who is dying on his own, he's just got to do it. And he can't. He's, like, almost physically unable to do it, which is kind of heartbreaking. Yeah, it's like he really... Like, he's got the will to do it, but he just doesn't have the, like, the ability. Like, no matter what. I mean, it's just, it's like the disease, it's the whatever. It's like when he finally comes face-to-face with this guy, he starts having flashbacks, and the same sort of power dynamic reemerges between these two guys. Like, where 22 years ago, he was being tortured and hit with a cricket bat in the head multiple times and getting his ear chopped off Reservoir Dog style and everything. (laughs) Like, 22 years later, these two guys are, like, dying, and they're in the same roles. Like, Cage just can't sort of shake that i don't think that has to necessarily do with his brain disorder either i think that's like post-traumatic stress like you know shell shock ptsd kind of stuff coming through so you know it's it's crazy like he's got these multiple levels going on with his affliction and they're all coming to a head here and it was shocking to, to see like he actually like lets the guy go which was a huge mistake but i was like whoa that is that was not expecting that yeah i don't and i'm not exactly sure why he lets him get away it turns out, as you just said, like it was, a, it was definitely the wrong decision to do. Why do you? Why do you think he did let him go? Ultimately, I feel like he thought the guy was just gonna sit there and die. Like he had found him, he could have done it. But it's one of those things we see a couple times where it's like Mr. Miyagi almost, where it's like I, I could kill you, but I'm gonna let you live. You know, like that's the lesson is like you have to live with yourself and what you've done but this guy is like a terrorist he's like you know he doesn't have that type of value cage might think he does like this guy basically puts a hit out on cage as soon as he leaves his house you know and cage just has to turn right around in his truck go back to the safe house and murder the guy like he should have it is i mean that is mm, i don't even have words like that 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 last scene is intense um it's chilling actually like i was like whoa he is scary in those final moments right he comes into the door and he's like like he basically what does he say he's just like assalamu alaikum like now you're gonna die (laughs) it was very charles bronson at that point he goes through this whole disguise process and dresses up like this doctor so he can go face to face with this guy who tortured him and cut his ear 22 years ago and he gets him and gets face to face with him and then his dementia kicks in his ptsd kicks in Whatever it is, a combination of the factors, and he really can't pull the trigger, and the metaphorical trigger, because he's going to stab him, whatever. But so then he leaves, and he goes to Anton Yelchin, and he's like, you know, was it worth it? He's like, oh, yeah, you should have heard him scream. I'm still not sure why he did it, but then it's sort of like he kind of got closure. The guy's just going to die anyway. He is just an old man, just like Cage. Let his time run out. He's not even able, he's not even physically able to get down to the floor to pray when he's supposed to pray. So this guy's just like this helpless old man. It's not this youthful, vigorous guy who tortured him 20 years ago. But then they're having like this nice conversation and talking about retirement and talking about what's going to come next. And then like just a shootout happens. And this is out of nowhere. Anton Yelchin just takes a bullet in the shoulder and then he goes down and then it's just like four or five gunmen. And Cage takes everybody out because he is this capable, trained CIA agent, gets back and goes and kills the guy. Like, it's this crazy, heightened, emotional, where, like, you have this, like, big sort of build-up to where he's all movie long, wants to kill this guy, and then doesn't. You sort of, like, breathe out of sight, like, okay, that's the end of it. And then we sort of have, like, this positive little moment, this little moment of bonding. Out of nowhere, it's just, like, this jolt, this shock, this kind of a jump scare. It's like, oh, no, this movie's not over. Like, this movie still has action left in it. 
I like what it does, even though I'm confused. You know what I mean? Like you, I don't know why he doesn't actually kill the guy when he has that chance. It's because he does have a flashback, he does have an episode, but he shakes it off eventually. He stands up, asserts his power over the guy. He says, I could kill you right now very easily, but I'm going to walk away just like that. I don't understand that. I want to make an excuse for it, why he does it, but I don't think I'll ever get a good one. However, I would have been fine if the movie did end there. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay, yeah, like you say, like, he's got his closure and that's what the film's about. Like, he found out, like, he can die with peace, right? He's made his peace, ultimately, is what it's come down to. But this is like a weird, twist, shocking sort of coda ending thing. I don't know what this... I like what it does. I like that I like that he eventually gets back to kill the guy. Because I just want to see him kill this guy he's been after for 20 years. You know, you don't... Like you said, like, it's just... I think it's more gratifying <laughs> as a moviegoer to see a guy actually get his revenge. Um, right. Physically get his revenge. So, I ultimately, I like that he writes it back around to... Yeah, he goes back and he kills the guy, but it's confusing to me. The first time he goes to kill the guy, Cage kind of has his best line in the movie where he's just like, you know, your long-term, I hear you're sick, you know, the long-term survival, long-term chances of your survival aren't good, and just to let you know, like, the short-term aren't good, because I'm not actually a doctor, I'm this guy. And, like, takes off his beard, and, like, that's kind of, like, a cool, badass moment. I have to be honest. Your condition is far worse than I imagined. Your long-term chances for survival are not good. Neither are your short-term chances. In fact, they are quite hopeless. That's because I'm not a doctor. My name isn't... Julian Cornell, and your name isn't Ali Hariri. In the second time, like you said, you know, he comes back, he's just like, time to die, and then he goes to stab the guy, and he sort of gets attacked. I'm not sure if he gets stabbed or not, but then gets the guy to the ground, and then in... You you know how much I squirmed a couple movies ago. I don't remember what movie it happened in. This is, like, disgusting. He, like, sticks his finger in the guy's eye, and you see his, like, finger go in... And then just, like, squishes it around. And I don't know if he, like, touches the brain or whatever, but the guy dies. Like, the guy is just out. Like, it's just, that's it. And it is gross and icky and kind of cool, but also just kind of gross. I kept thinking, like, Cage has lost an eye in three films. It's time for him to take an eye. <laughs> that was hilarious. Like, he, he actually took this guy's eye out. Like, it was pretty crazy and quick and just like a burst of action here at the end. Like, when he punches him in the chest, it feels like he cracks something, you know? Like, he cracked, like, his ribs or something like that. Uh, and then he takes his belt knife and it looks like as he's poking his eye out he's like stabbing him in the cheek at the same time i'm not quite sure that's that's what i thought i saw but it's gruesome it's intense and uh it's pretty great it's it it, it is it's yeah those are all intense and gruesome and great those are great just the, the right words for it do you think that this kill counts for his beaten to death tally because it's kind of close like it's kind of mm. borderline we don't really know I mean, he sort of uses his bare hands along with the knife. Should we count this? Should we add this to the tally? This is a tough one. I think so, because ultimately it was like one-on-one, close quarters kind of stuff. 
Yeah, I think it counts because he was beating on him. What about the guy in the bathroom that he just punched in the head? Did he kill that guy? I wasn't quite sure about that. I was like, oh, there he just beat a guy to death with one punch. He's like, <laughs> one punch man. Um, no, I don't think so because the guy, the guy that he goes there to kill, he's like, well, what about that guy? He's like, no, he'll be fine. And I, I didn't get the sense that he was lying okay. about that. I think he just sort of knocks him out because I just, I, it's, it's crazy how quickly he goes down. Like, I guess he knows exactly where to punch to knock the guy out. I don't know. He's like, the toilet doesn't flush. I pulled the chain and then just like one quick punch, and the guy is just out cold. So I guess he could have died, but I don't think he did. In any regard, I say we count this one, um, what was his name? Baneer, right? Baneer is the name of this terrorist leader guy. So, yeah, he, he beats Baneer to death with his with his bare hands. I always like it when we can add another name or another film to the tally. Like that, I'm, I'm totally cool. I'm okay bending the rules a little bit. <laughs> but then we have another movie, another kind of weird, not necessarily weird, because I do, I do think it's fitting, a, a sort of jarring ending. And a couple movies recently, I think this has happened, where Cage kills himself. I guess he, he decides to end his own life, that he's driving down the street after he's killed this guy, sort of has nothing left to do in life, you know. No longer has his job, his job was his family. He's completed the only task that he's set out to do for the last 22 years. His best friend was shot, he doesn't know the fate of him. And he's just driving down the street and then veers into the path of an oncoming truck and kills himself. Yeah, I think this is the second official suicide. Bangkok Dangerous is similar. He ends his life in a car. <laughs> you know, he shoots himself in the head. But as you were talking, I got a thought that popped in my head. Maybe the reason he didn't kill that Benir in the first place is that, like, he thought he could have a life if he went back home. Like, maybe him and, you know, his partner could build something together in an actual father-son relationship and that he could live uh, out his time. Uh, and then that sort of shootout at the poolside is a reminder that, no, you're on the clock. Like, you're going to die. Like, you should have, you should hurry up and, and go kill that guy kind of situation. I, I don't know. It just it just got me thinking about that because I'm desperate to understand <laughs> understand that. Oh, I, I like that, though. I think okay. I like that, that, you know, death is always going to be around him, right? And that no matter where he goes, he's always going to have something haunting him and people may be out to get him, that I'm sure that decades in the CIA that he's got enemies on some level, you know what I mean? So he's never necessarily going to be completely safe. And also the people that are around him, even though Anton Yelchin is just there, really honestly kind of innocent of everything, he's still going to put the people that he gets close to in harm's way. So I can totally see it as like a stark reminder, like, hey, this can't continue. Yeah, and I even think he might think... Anton Yelchin died because I thought he died like it looks like he gets shot up not just shot once like it looked to me like he was dead and that made it all the more sort of critical I was like oh no like no you didn't like his one friend the one guy that like he had any trust and attachment with and like now he's really got nothing but no he he survives and actually gets commemorated which was kind of cool they really kind of gloss over that they shoot it from a distance they sort of dissolve it between two shots but like yeah it's just not important to him but he goes back stateside and actually sort of is rewarded for doing all this craziness and stuff, I guess. Well, he was also, in the beginning of the movie, it was said that he's the only living recipient of the Intelligence Star. And they don't really say what that is. He's this guy who both in life and in death is decorated and honored and sort of celebrated for his actions. And so that's kind of cool. I think one thing that is sort of like a something that isn't sitting right with me, this movie like isn't based on a true story, is it? Like, it sort of feels like it's based on a real guy, doesn't it? 
You know, it feels like it's kind of adapted from actual events and people in weird ways. You know what I mean? Like, it almost feels like he's playing an amalgam of spies that have sort of come out and been in the news, like, in the early 2000s and stuff that, you know, like, after 9-11 and when all that information was really being thrown around and stuff, you sort of started to hear about the spies behind the desks and what they were capable of. So I kind of feel like he got some of it from there. There's a lot of just politically fused dialogue and ideologies between characters in this film. So I think it's just sort of taken from the temperature of society at the time. This guy he's hunting, Benir, he's definitely like Bin Laden-esque, right? Like sure, they say yep. Bin Laden was you know, on dialysis and this guy's on, you know, he's got IVs hanging from his arms. They even say they found like porn on his flash drive and stuff. So yeah. <laughs> Paul Schrader kind of just sat down and said, oh, what, are, what am I going to do with all of this stuff that's sort of in the zeitgeist right now? You know, can I sort of all like pack it down into, you know, a thrilling story by any means so. all right i buy i buy that i think that it works pretty well i think it uh feels i guess yeah i don't know what i'm saying this movie's weird to talk about <laughs> <laughs> well what's strange is like there aren't very many films like this because most of them on the spy side are like james bondy like action most of the sort of conspiracy thriller political spy stuff you're on the other side you're on the side of the guy who doesn't know anything you know like seeking justice or marathon man with dustin hoffman or even you know all the president's men like people who are sort of half out of the loop but in this one it's like where it's from the spy's point of view and he's doing cool spy shit but it's just it feels a little off because it's not like that crazy action-packed stuff you know it's more of just like a subdued spy thriller i mean even with i haven't seen the new Hanks spy film but even that you know it's like from the everyman's perspective and yeah so it's kind of hard I think that's why some people might be turned off from this it's because the hero quote-unquote isn't really doing all that much crazy heroic stuff yeah that makes sense I mean and that's almost that's that's by design right like you you know Mm -hmm. having your movie star an older man 22 years after an event that caused PTSD it's like it's just sort of I mean it's it's I guess the word I was looking for earlier is like it's sort of like elderly empowering like it's just like a new perspective that it's a new audience instead of seeing a guy like I mean they're they're fun they're they're cool they're exciting but like how many times can you make a Jason Bourne or a Jack Ryan movie you know like you see we've seen movies where people are in their physical prime and able to go about and do all this crazy stuff, the Mission Impossible movies, and I love them, but it's also kind of cool to see a movie told from a different perspective like this every once in a while. Like, this might be close to what you would get if, like, Sean Connery was still playing James Bond, right? Like, (laughs) limited mobility, you know, just can't run the extra mile all the time. You would get, you know, a spy who takes his time and, you know, sneaks around more. I mean, more of like a Tinker Tailor soldier spy thing going on, I guess. Yeah, yeah. You know, something more like that. So, yeah, it is kind of cool, though. I like this elderly genre. I don't know what to call it exactly. I mean, most movies nowadays you get is like bad grandpa or like last vegas where you kind of they're just making fun of the old guys and stuff and this one treats it with a certain amount of dignity so i liked how it had that going for it very much so uh do you have any other notes about the movie that we didn't cover that we wanted that you wanted to talk about i think we got there got to everything how much do you think this movie cost to make what do you think the budget was all right i think this one was real low i'm gonna lowball this one i'm gonna say i'm gonna say if the last i'm gonna say I'm going to go with my 18, 18 mil. 
five. Holy sh! <laughs> I was right? gonna, I was going to say like my low ball was actually going to be like ten, but five. And a million of that was Cage's salary. Whoa! So four. so <laughs> four, yeah. Like I think this movie, considering how inexpensive, I mean, we have nowhere near that amount of money. But that's also the sort of the amount of money that we could conceivably figure out how to raise. Like that's not that much money, especially compared to other. You know what I mean? Like they in the have, grand scheme of movie making, that's yeah, not like, that they, much. No, this is like you know they have like low budget. This is like considered no budget. I mean, this had more budget than Seeking Justice, and it's like much more competent. Looks much better, right? It just is like actually has moments or two where I'd go back and watch. Like, it actually has cage freakouts where he's uh, freaking out well and knows how to... And Schrader knows how to capture his performance as opposed to whatever was going on in Frozen Ground where, like, you know, that movie just had nothing going, just had no fight to it. But, like, this is crazy that they put 15... Five... uh, I can't even talk now, but (laughs) that this was only $5 million blows my mind. Like, they have it all on camera. Like, we talked about, I think that's sort of a phrase that you like to use. Like, I mean, this movie looks, the, say, the saying is still going to undercut it, but like, the movie looks like a million bucks, you know what I mean? Like, it looks nice, and I guess it's the sort of, same sort of thing I think we were talking about with Tobin a couple episodes ago, where you can just go out and rent really nice cameras and just make your movie look really nice. Or actually, no, that was with Rage. But, yeah, like, you can just go out and get cameras pretty affordably, and if you have the locations, you sort of have the actors. I mean, you can do things that look like, sort of major movies on the relative cheap. Like, good job, Paul Schrader. Like, that was... You, you did well. I mean, your movie's not necessarily great, but, like, you made the butt, you made the dollar go a pretty far away. Well, I mean, I'll say this. Like, they may have taken his film away from him, but it wasn't until he got it in the can. You know what I'm saying? Like, he still had to, like, go out and shoot this thing with, you know, four million bucks and or whatever. By that point, probably just, like, cost even less because think about what they had to spend on post-production if they really kind of rejiggered this thing to make it something else. Like, that's, uh, yeah, that's a feat. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to the next film that he, him and Cage are doing and what they put on the screen and what they spend. I want, I want to know all now. I'm looking forward to that. Yes, very much so. That's later this year. That's Dog Eat Dog. So look out for that. So any last thoughts? I know you said you don't have any notes, but any last thoughts about the movie? I'm definitely going to go back and watch uh, him resign from the CIA. I mean, that's great where he tells off his bosses. I mean, it's, I mean, it's sad because, you know, it's the man's disease coming through, but it's great because it's a great cage moment. Like, you know, he's really selling that, and it's, it's scary, it's cagey, and I'm going to go check that back out. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, sort of like a, it's sort of like a career-long rant that he goes on almost. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's he's it's been pent up. <laughs> it's been wanting to say that stuff at some point. Uh, I also say, you know, check it out. Why not? You know, like if if what we're saying sounds interesting, you know, it's worth a watch. You know, I, I'd watch this again before something like Trespass, probably. Joey, I don't know, maybe. I think so. Maybe I don't know. I well, mean, that has Mendelssohn in it, so that's a tough call. Um, that has like that's almost so bad it's good this is just sort of like so bland it's okay good call (laughs) i know exactly what you mean so i mean like i wouldn't mind watching this again but it's not something that i'm eagerly looking forward to seeing again so sorry paul schrader um but i mean you don't even like this movie anyway so i think you'd probably be on our side so it's not your fault it's not our fault it's the let's let's just blame the producers but not nicholas winding reffin just blame the other ones for all things Cage, you can go to cageclub.me. You can read our reviews, find past podcasts, follow us on Twitter, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. All things Cage at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And we'll see you next time on Cage Club. <laughs>